everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes. And we're doing a podcast today that we have been prepping for for quite a while. And I, I will say it is probably the most requested topic we've had in a long time, maybe ever in the So We Speak mm-hmm. podcast. And that, that tells you something right off the bat is we're going to talk about deconstruction today. And I just wonder if we could do a little bit of a mind reading here. People see this title. Of course, you're listening if you're hearing us right now. So you're somewhat interested. But even if we could just know what got people interested, it would kind of lead us down this road a little ways. You just say the word deconstruction and a million things come to people's mind. And so part of the goal today, and this is just going to be part one of two parts uh, talking about deconstruction. Part one today is almost going to be just disambiguating and making some sense of what deconstruction actually is. So I would just ask, if you're listening to this episode, make sure you tune in in a couple of weeks when we do the second half of this, uh, because I don't think everybody will be totally satisfied, and I don't think people will get all their questions answered maybe uh, until you listen to the second half and we can bring things full circle. Agreed. I think this is a big topic and, you know, probably the way to dive into this because it is such a big topic is first, let me ask you, setting aside the Christian faith for a minute, the idea of deconstruction is not a new idea in the world or in the world of ideas or the world of philosophy, but what broadly speaking is deconstruction, Cole? This is a good place to start because it goes back to the foundation of the concept, but it exposes part of the dynamic that makes deconstruction so tricky to talk about. So uh, this is the same thing we talked about when we did uh, Bodie Bauckham's book on fault lines. We were talking about critical race theory. One of the arguments around critical race theory is that is not critical race theory. Critical race theory is a legal theory that was developed in you know 50 years ago and it's applied to specific cases and part of the part of the enduring confusion around these topics is there is a technical meaning and there is a popular meaning and when the popular meaning is accused of being whatever people revert to the technical meaning and then people continue to apply the technical meaning of whatever it is and it sure looks like it and it quacks like it but it technically isn't whatever it is. And deconstruction fits into this category. So where we want to start is by talking about the technical definition of deconstruction and then bridging the gap to say, and what do people usually mean when they, when they say something like I'm deconstructing my faith or they're going through a season of deconstruction. So to start deconstruction comes out of a lot of the the postmodern ideologies of the 1960s, 70s, 80s. And uh, I thought Kevin DeYoung has a really helpful article at World, and we're going to include a big bibliography uh, probably in the notes of this podcast and also as a separate blog entry at SoWeSpeak.com. What I thought was helpful for DeYoung's article is he goes back and traces the influence of somebody like Michel Foucault talking about language as a power game. So there's a fundamental shift that takes place in postmodern theory and postmodern philosophy where um, you have perspective, you have language, you have experience, you have intersectionality, starting to determine truth around experience as opposed to objectivity, which would be something like what we think about when we think of the Enlightenment. Any person anywhere with any experience, it doesn't matter, can see the same set of data and come to the same conclusions. So the challenge begins to be how much of your life and what you believe is determined by outside conditions. Have you been conditioned to believe something by your experiences? Have you been taught to believe something? Does the fact that you are male or female, white or black, rich or poor, determine that you're going to be and think a certain way? So he traces this uh, into deconstruction. And deconstruction is a lens, or maybe what we would call it a worldview, that has certain tenets for evaluating truth and for evaluating the world. One of those lenses is power dynamics. So a person that's uh, using the lens of deconstruction is concerned with who or what is the source of power. So is there is there a person who is in power? They may be abusive. 
Is there a person who doesn't have power? They may be marginalized. You know, this is where we get a lot of the terms that float around with deconstruction, like um, decolonizing something. So the lens of deconstruction applied to the Western canon of literature, for example. We're going to decolonize the canon. Sometimes you hear that. That means we're not going to read any more dead white guys. Why? Right. Not because of what the dead white guys said per se, although sometimes it is about what they said, but usually it's because they resided in a group that was in power. And so we immediately have a suspicion of people who possess power. So this is this is going to be simple, but this is an overview of the kinds of lenses that deconstruction uses. Another thing that we might say is whatever is normative. So we want to normalize certain things. We want to be aware of who has been marginalized. So people do this with the Bible all the time. What voices don't get to talk in the Bible? And so you can go to stories of the Bible where you have women, for example, this is very common in feminist critiques of scripture. You have women that actually don't get speaking parts in the Bible or they aren't named in the Bible. And so we'll read into that, that they must be the most important perspective in the story because they're being marginalized. So this is a claim that we make bringing an ideology to a certain set of either texts or events or examples. And when we deconstruct, we are looking for hidden motives, hidden power structures, hidden agendas. We are looking right. for marginalization. And once you do that, you begin to reevaluate or, and this is where we get the term, deconstruct what's there to see what's underneath it. And this is the process, either philosophically or theologically or socially, of deconstructing an idea. It's, uh, I'm going to oversimplify this, but I, I agree with everything you said. But to oversimplify it, one way to think about it is it's a shift from looking at what is said, in other words, the truth. Is it true or is it not true is the fundamental question. Shifting to a question of who said it and what might their motives be. And if their motives are not advantageous to me or fair to me or just or whatever it may be, then I will disregard what is said. So truth yeah. and power. Again, a little oversimplifying, but truth is the basis for uh, what we're seeking. The other is evaluating everything by power. Well, how does that apply, Cole, to the Christian world, the evangelical world, what are called exvangelicals, meaning evangelicals who have, quote, deconstructed their faith? How does how does this apply specifically to Christians? Well, I like the way that you just summarized that because there's suspicion is one of the markers of deconstruction. So suspicion that somebody might be saying something not because it's true. And part of deconstruction is actually not believing in an objective version of truth, not because right. it's true, because it might benefit them or because it might preserve their power. So if you take that exactly like you explained it, and you begin to apply it to faith and scripture and cultural manifestations of the church, all of a sudden now you can look at something like evangelicalism and say, why did this movement arise? Not because they had a specific set of theological beliefs that distinguished them, but because they were in a certain social situation. They were in a certain racial situation. They were in a certain power dynamic situation. And this is where you get things like uh, evangelicalism is a religion of white supremacy. You see that all the time. Evangelical mm -hmm. theology is tied with white supremacy. And if, if you haven't encountered this before, you really have to think about why somebody would say that. It's really kind of surprising. You think, what does that have to do with anything? Well, certain evangelical groups... We're starting up at about the time of the Civil War, and there were evangelicals, Southern Baptists, for example, who argued on both sides of the slavery question because there were those people who now we have a denomination that descends from them. It must be that because those people were involved with slavery and wanted to keep um, their power dynamics, that their theology is only influenced by that, not, not by theological tenets. Okay, that's one way you might approach something like this. Right. But I want to make a distinction here. People deconstruct for really different reasons. So when we start to apply this to Christianity and specifically evangelicalism, just because that's where it's most popular, I, I want to lay out a few categories that we should be aware of. And they're not exclusive. A lot of times there's a lot of things going on when somebody is 
um, talking about deconstruction. And sometimes they're not even talking about it. They're just doing it. So some, sometimes it is an ideological deconstruction. That's what we're, we're going to spend almost all of our time in this podcast talking about. And I know that that doesn't hit all the people who are covered in this conversation. I just mean that in, that, that other groups will probably be covered more in the second podcast. So there's an ideological deconstruction that we're dealing with now, which is you have basically put on a worldview or, or specific lenses from a progressive worldview and applied that back onto your faith. This is what, this is what we call an ideological deconstruction. You are deconstructing in terms of theology and beliefs, et cetera. The next biggest group, and, and something that was really eye-opening to me this week is I had a friend from seminary post a clip of Matt Chandler. And it's it's an out-of-context 30-second clip from a sermon, which you know always runs the risk of missing somebody. But the point of this was to say that Chandler was wrong. And basically what he said in the clip was, we're in a day and age when deconstruction and turning away from and leaving the faith has become some kind of sexy thing to do. I contend that if you've ever experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, actually, that that is impossible to deconstruct from. But if all you understand Christianity to be is a moral code, then I totally get it. That's what he says. What surprised me was the response. So this tweet goes fairly viral. And I was reading through the replies and the quotes of this tweet just to see how people reacted. And these were all negative reactions. And the most common response that people gave was deconstruction and deconversion are not the same thing. That was the first thing that people were distinguishing is he seems to think that decon deconstruction means you leave the faith. Most often, I think it means you leave your denomination of your childhood or whatever you previously were. You leave evangelicalism and you become something else. Uh, the second thing, though, that people said was basically there's nothing sexy. There's nothing enjoyable about deconstruction. And I want to stand up for Chandler here for a moment and say th this is a trend. There are people making, if you want to analyze people's motives, there are a lot of people making a lot of money by criticizing traditional Bible-believing evangelicalism. And they're being hired by secular groups a lot of the time, or progressive Christian groups, almost as hired guns trained at uh, conservative Christians. And they're really reaping a lot of cultural cachet from this. They're making a lot of money from this. So I, so I do think if you just step back, this really has become a cottage industry, this whole deconstruction criticism of the church. Where I think maybe he went wrong with this quote is by narrowing this definition just to people in this ideological category. Because a lot of the people in this thread would fit into a different category. And this is the one that we're going to cover in the next podcast, which would be people who have really been wounded by the church, who have been hurt by the church, um, who have been abused in some way or another by the church, and they are reacting or recoiling against those experiences. This is another kind of deconstruction. Now, it's not to say that these are mutually exclusive. Sometimes both things are happening at once. But this is certainly a different dynamic than somebody who just is thinking about Christianity differently than they did before. And then the third category, I would say, are, are people that are actually just reevaluating what they believe based on the Bible, based on theology, um, because you see people basically say, well, well de all deconstruction is, is realizing that you grew up in an ultra-fundamentalist church that put tradition ahead of the Bible, and now you have a biblical view of the world. If, in fact, that's actually true, then that would be a healthy kind of deconstruction. Usually right. you don't call that deconstruction. Usually you just call that coming to the truth. But if that's true, that you basically are seeing ways that the word of man has, has trumped the word of God and you're coming to a realization of what the Bible teaches, that would be our third category. That would be a healthy kind of deconstruction. And part right. of the reason we're doing this podcast is because we want people to go through that third process, if that's the case. We want people to be Christians. Unashamedly, we want people to know Christ, to be conformed to his image, to have their sins forgiven, to understand and love the Bible and love God because of that. And if that if that's what happens through your quote unquote deconstruction, then we would consider that a good kind of deconstruction. 
My contention is that's not what most people mean by deconstruction. And so there's this little language game that gets played where you say deconstruction is bad. Then all of a sudden somebody whips out this third version of deconstruction says, well, this isn't bad. It's like, but they're talking about two totally different things when it comes to their faith. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to frame this, I think, because, you know, the, I think you may have put this in a, in a, a weekly speak, but Joshua Butler in the Gospel Coalition had, a, had a, a blog where he talked about four categories. You talked about three, but they're really the same. And let me stake out the two extremes. One extreme is I've been hurt by the church. I've been very disillusioned. And I'm personally really struggling and a great deal of sympathy for that. And we will talk more about how to approach people in that situation. On the other extreme are people that are basically uh, people pleasers or people who would like to change their point of view for personal reasons, kind of popularity with the culture. Doubt is hip. You can actually be very popular in the culture by criticizing traditional Christianity. So those are let's put those as the two extremes. Here's the problem. There, in my view, there are sheep and there are wolves in this argument on the deconstruction side. And the difficulty is wolves always want to wear sheepskin. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy to change it. So you find someone who's out there evangelizing for deconstruction saying, well, you know, I'm in category one. I was so hurt. I can't believe I'm doing this. This is so painful for me. When actually, they're actually uh, a wolf pursuing evangelizing other Christians at this. So don't expect anybody to say, hey, I just decided that it's a good gig and I can really get along with the culture a lot better and I can Mm -hmm. adopt cultural moral values and so forth by deconstructing my faith. No one's going to say that. And it's hard to differentiate that. I want to jump in there just for a minute because I I just included an article from Trevin Wax uh, in this week's Weekly Speak. So if you're listening to this, Uh, on Wednesday. This would have been Monday's weekly speak. And what he did was he looked at a bunch of new data that studies in a a book that studies um, progressives and conservatives and their political affiliations and the widening gap between these two groups of Christians to the point that he basically makes the claim on, on the basis of this research that these are two different religions at this point. But the, the, the finding I thought was the most interesting was Progressive Christians target conservative Christians to evangelize at a much higher rate than they target unbelievers to become Christians. So I'm not saying this is true for everyone, but the statistics on this are interesting. And I think anecdotally, this is this is really appear to be true to me. This kind of deconstruction as an apologetic is usually aimed at a conservative Christian or even a fundamentalist Christian. They're usually not doing much evangelism that like we would consider traditional evangelism, which is a non-believer becoming a Christian. It's a conservative Christian becoming a progressive Christian. And this is happening more often than not. And so deconstruction is one of the things that plays that role from the inside out, not the outside. And it's reverse evangelism. Right. This would We'd be having a little different discussion here if the data showed that progressive Christians are saying, look, the Bible's wrong about all the morality and about, uh, you know, power structures and dynamics. And so you're talking to a secular minded person, someone who's not a Christian and say, look, I agree with all your moral principles. I just want you to start coming to church every Sunday and give 10 percent of your income. And you can see why that's not a particularly compelling gospel, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so the data bears that out. And I think that's an important point that you made. But that leads me to, let me flip on the other side a minute and ask some questions that I think have to be dealt with. So in a book called After Evangelicalism, a guy named Gushy, and I'm going to read part of a quote here. He says, it is a fact that the Bible is always an interpreted text and that we flawed, limited, self-interested people are the interpreters. What's he saying? He's saying everybody brings a point of view to the Bible and he wants to level the playing field. And there's no right point of view. So we all ought to just say the Bible can mean a lot of things to different people. So how do you react to this idea that everybody brings a point of view and that all points of view are valid and therefore there is no one interpretation of the Bible? How do you react to that statement? 
my my gut reaction is that the people who make that statement almost never actually believe that's true because they believe that the way they see the Bible is more correct than somebody they deem to be a fundamentalist. And I'll explain that by saying this is really the most repackaged part of uh, deconstruction. This is not a new phenomenon at all. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we did a podcast with uh, Jarrett Ford about um, Rhett and Link, who are two ultra popular YouTubers. Um, they, I think they worked for Crew or FCA or somebody like that. And then they moved to California. They got really famous doing their YouTube videos. And they came out saying, we've deconstructed, we're no longer Christians. And one of the things that we talked about in that podcast is the reasons that they gave were not compelling reasons, unless you already believed them. It, it, the, the whole thing was basically a rehashed version of questions that are easily answerable about the Bible, cultural matters that have been in the water for 150 years, and objections that if you just go to Mardell, you can find a book to answer them in a heartbeat. So why is it that they deconstructed? You know, what is it that's really getting at it here? Well, it comes out that they really wanted to believe what they wanted to believe about sexuality. They didn't want, they didn't believe what the Bible said about it anymore. And now they have a whole framework to justify not trusting the Bible on these issues. So they don't have to trust the Bible on these other issues. And I thought it was really interesting in that video. They say, now some people are going to say that this is just a cliche story of two Christian guys from the Midwest grow up, they move to California, and they lose their faith. But that's not what happened here. And I kept just thinking, yeah, that's, that's exactly what happened here. Now, everybody right. has their own reason for that. But yeah, you got famous, moved to California, and decided you didn't want to believe what the Bible says anymore. There's part of this that's not new. A hundred years ago, this was Darwinian um, evolution. People were quote unquote, deconstructing around the idea in the fundamentalist modernist controversy a hundred years ago, can I reconcile science with the Bible? And I've got to pick one or the other. So there's a lot of this conversation that is not new. This particular thing you've brought up is basic postmodern relativism. There are no true truth claims. No viewpoint is more privileged than the other's. But the problem is this is a self-defeating position to hold, because on the one hand, to say that there are no truth claims is a truth claim in and of itself. Secondly, these people clearly believe that certain opinions are better than others, or they would leave the other people alone. So what they want to say, they don't they don't want to say there's no view that's better than another. It's your view is not better than another. So you, this, this just kind of reminds me of freshman philosophy at a state school. You come in, you usually have a postmodern kind of relativist professor who wants to make sure that the students understand that what they used to believe is wrong and passe and what he believes is right. But the way that they typically do it is by challenging them on their beliefs, not interrogating the professor's beliefs, but interrogating the student's beliefs. And when you do that, you can play this game of no belief is better than the other. Your belief isn't better than anybody else's. And all the while imply that the beliefs that you hold actually are the true beliefs. In deconstruction, this is 100% what's going on. In the ideological part of deconstruction, you're making a claim nobody's viewpoint is better than another, except the deconstructive viewpoint. The deconstructive viewpoint with a suspicion of motives power dynamics, uh, you know, the situation in 2021 America is now the dominant way to read scripture and Christian history. They really do believe that one viewpoint is better than the other. Right. It's not a coherent point of view. It serves your purposes. Tim Keller has a really interesting quote about this, but let me frame it for you. He's talking specifically about Christians who believe the biblical sexual morality. Uh, I think he's happened in the context of this happens to be about homosexuality, but that's not really uh, the issue here. He, he says, if you used to believe the biblical sexual morality, you thought that the Bible was true and now you don't 
because someone that you know or love or whatever has caused you to question whether or not that can actually be true. His point is this. If you change your opinion, given that the Bible hasn't changed, then you were a bigot before. And he's not trying to be offensive. He's simply saying you didn't actually believe that the Bible was true because you would hold on to truth. But basically, you were just bigoted against homosexuals before. And so if you can change your mind on what the Bible has to say, and then the, his obvious implication is, what's to say you're not still a bigot? Mm -hmm. In other words, once you divorce yourself from truth as a foundation, you need another foundation. And the problem with deconstruction is there is no foundation. It's whatever point of view you may choose to hold today. And most people come to that. And this is, to me, the epiphany to set up what we're going to talk about in the next podcast is we need to realize that most people don't come to this through a considered evaluation of what is true. Some do. Most don't. Mm -hmm. Most people do have an ulterior motive and are looking for a way to arrive at what they want. And this I, this postmodern idea, this uh, woke is a, is a term that's kind of gone out of use now, but basically this idea of point of view uh, identity group, whatever, is custom made to have my own way with whatever ideology. It isn't just Christianity. It's whatever uh, thing I want to have a point of view on. Yes. And so I think Keller really hits the nail on the head on that is once you get away from the pursuit of truth, you get into a land where anybody can believe anything. Right. I, I think the metaphor would be, you know, if you're floating on a life raft and you begin to deconstruct your life raft, all of a sudden you shouldn't be surprised that you're treading water. And that's where deconstruction without any reconstruction ultimately leads is you have so undone and deconstructed all the foundations and authority and trustworthy sources and bedrocks that you believed. And now all of a sudden you have a really hard time determining what to believe. And so I think where we'll end in the next episode is deconstruction without reconstruction ultimately leads people to lose their faith. And so deconstruction with reconstruction can make your faith stronger. Um, I, I want to go back to that Butler article for a minute at the Gospel Coalition and just point something out here that, that I think has gone missing in uh, a lot of 21st century American Christianity, which is Butler points out that one of the reasons people deconstruct is their own sin. And uh, this would kind of be in the middle of the two extremes. It's, it's not just that you want to hold on to your beliefs about sin. It's that you really are just trapped by your own sin. And that is influencing the way that you're thinking about things. And uh, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And it's absent from most pulpits because it's really uncomfortable to talk about. That it could be that actually the reason you think the things that you do is because you're continually succumbing to sin, which we know from the Bible actually warps the way you think about things, warps the way you think about God and about the word. And uh, I, I want to point out that the parable of the sower can be really helpful in uh, mm, thinking through a, these issues. So in the paradigm. parable of the sower, the sower goes out and he throws the seed. And we have kind of a default understanding that most of the seed grows and most of it turns out great. And most of it bears fruit and most of it comes back a hundredfold. That's not the way the parable of the sower goes. And this is not just a pessimistic statement. I think this is really true to the biblical way of understanding who we are as human beings. Our default is not that the seed falls on the good soil. Only one in four of the seeds, and I'm not talking about the measure, I'm talking about the categories here, fall onto right. good soil. There's a reason that in that parable, there are fewer uh, there, there are fewer seeds that fall on the good soil than fall anywhere else, whether it be on the rocks or among the thorns or whatever. And shallow roots starting out but not finishing, falling onto a hard heart, that shouldn't surprise us in our world today. We're coming off of one of the most remarkable cultural experiences in history where you have an American culture where a lot of people and social norms point towards at least lip service to Christianity. Now that that veneer is being taken off, we shouldn't be surprised that the world goes back to looking more like the parable of the sower, where sometimes it's not just uh, the bad parts of the church. Sometimes it's not just intellectual doubt. Sometimes it's the fact that, uh, you know, as John says, here's the verdict. People love darkness. 
That's right. part of the human condition is there's our sin keeps us from believing. And uh, there's a lot of theology we can get into there. But I think just the basic point is we should recalibrate a little bit to say it shouldn't be shocking to us that people reject Christianity on its face. And some of that has to do with their own sin. Are you saying that historically speaking, biblically speaking, that the time that we seem to be moving into is actually more normal than the bubble of Christianity in America over well, the last hundred years or so? Would you say we're returning to more of a normal historical relation between the culture and Christianity? On the whole, yeah, I, th I think that's definitely true. American Christianity is a unique phenomenon. Now, it's not totally unique. There are other places in Europe and places in uh, the early church where it was the norm to be Christian. But I would say that we're moving to a, a more normal state of humanity, which is there are a lot of people that just reject God. They don't want God. They want their sin. And that's the thing that, like I said, it's not popular. It's probably, you know, some, some of you hear this and say, I just, I don't think that's really the case. That may be, that, that may be true in your circle, but just think back to the way the Bible describes the world. The default of the world is sin and rejection. And we want to make sure that we're sharing the gospel because people need to understand the good news, um, which implies that they don't already know it. Now, the other thing I'm not saying is that the only reason that people deconstruct is because of their sinfulness. Um, on a meta level, the reason that we reject God is always because of sinfulness. But on a specific level, I'm not saying if you have a friend who says, I'm really struggling in my faith, that you need to just sit them down and question them until you find the secret hidden sin. I'm not, I'm not really right. saying that in every specific case. I'm just saying on the spectrum of options, don't forget that we can be blinded to what God's doing because of our sin nature. Well, in a corollary, because I agree with you, I think what we're entering into is much more historically normal for Christianity. And I actually think there's a reason that this is happening. I think the whole, I think God is architecting history. So we see God's hand in, in the movement of all the history. But I do think that the gospel has come what uh, become in America, what I'm going to call a low contrast message. And that is a message that is so like the secular world. Uh, and again, I'm not trying to to be mean about this. I'm just making an observation. You may agree or disagree, but a progressive gospel is so like the world that there isn't much contrast between the world and the gospel. You read the New Testament and you see that, oh my goodness, this message, hence the persecution, obviously, is at very high contrast. It's different sexually. It's different morally. It's different in, in, in integrity. It's different in the entire worldview is different. And so I do think that this is an opportunity for the gospel to become high contrast again. And I think right. if you look around the world, the places where the gospel is growing are largely not in progressive gospel uh, churches. And I'm using that as a kind of a fuzzy term, but in places where you see a much more high contrast biblical gospel being preached. Mm -hmm. uh, we probably ought to put some support in for that statement, but that is my opinion. And I think that's why, as I think there's not a compelling reason to go to, this is true for any ideology, by the way, but a gospel that looks a lot like what I already believe, there's not a compelling reason for me to change what I believe. But the mm -hmm. New Testament, Jesus was a, was a guy that you just could not ignore. You may reject him, but you could not ignore him. And right. so in that sense, I think this is a, this is a good thing. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, a point that, that progressives often make is there's deconstruction that needs to happen against the ultra-fundamentalist, ultra-conservative, ultra-far-right as well. And I don't think either of us would dispute that point. That just Agreed. isn't typically what's happening in deconstruction. So, for example, do people need to, quote-unquote, deconstruct away from Christian nationalism? Well, sure, if you can define Christian nationalism, which, again, has been a very slippery right. term in terms of what is and is not Christian nationalism. But sure, if you can define that in a way that your allegiance is in something other than Christ, by all means, if the governing Absolutely. principle of your life is something other than God's word— then you need to turn, repent, and get away from that. So absolutely, this can happen on the right. It can happen on the left. Um, and and sometimes we just take for granted that things 
you know, the legalism of an ultra fundamentalist understanding of Christianity, you should jettison. But I don't want to leave that out of the conversation because I think that's a that's a really good point. However, what we mean by deconstruction is usually moving from a traditional biblical understanding to a progressive understanding. And so just in the taxonomy of this term, that's the implication. But if you want to apply this to something else that's clearly wrong, then of course I, I, I would support that as well. Um, but this is the way the category typically works. Well, let me change topic. I want to ask you uh, another question and let's just put ourselves in these shoes. So what if I say to you uh, very sincerely, uh, I am troubled by the history of the church in America when it comes to slavery. And to a certain extent, not again painting with a broad brush that all Christians have done things wrong or see things wrong, but I'm deeply troubled by the church's relationship with slavery. I'm troubled by the way certain uh, marginal groups, let's say homosexuals were treated 50 years ago by certain uh, churches and so forth, that there have been people wounded, hurt, and oppressed in ways that are not right. And the church has been uh, complicit in that to some extent. Consequently, I'm now questioning the faith that I hold because of the action of some churches in the past. I think that there are people who feel that way, and I'm very sympathetic to that. I want to make this observation, and I want to see if you agree with it, and, and don't hesitate to, to not, or to add to it, is I wonder if we have converted people to the church sometimes when we should have been converting them to Christ. I understand disillusionment with the church. I have a harder time understanding disillusionment with Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I, I want to go back to the Chandler quote here and say, I think that's basically what he was getting at, is to say, no, if you've experienced Christ, now he's also making a theological claim here. He's making a, a reformed theological claim that if you really have, if you really are in Christ, you will not deconstruct away from that. That's a theological claim that he's making. But the other right. claim that he's making is, if you know Christ— versus if you've only known a moral kind of legalistic or um, abusive or cultural code, expression, right? then I totally get deconstruction. And so I, I want to say that both of the groups that you mentioned, I have a lot of sympathy with. And in fact, I really wouldn't disagree with a lot of the claims that you see made about the history of the church and race. Um, when you get into politics in terms of what should we do about it, certain policies, all of that, of course, we can have a conversation. But if we just limit the discussion to have there been historic injustices in the way that certain Christians have treated or participated in issues of race, issues of sexuality, issues of nationalism, all of that, of course, I think the difference between healthy uh, reform and unhealthy deconstruction is what are you going to do about it? So let's say you're in a position where you say, well, I'm just horrified that there were Christians who supported slavery. I'm, I'm horrified that there are Christians that participated in Jim Crow. Uh, there are Christian racists. Okay. I think you would be and hard I'm horrified by that too because be of the biblical to find ways. somebody who's not horrified by that. The question is, what do you think needs to be changed or where do you go for uh, a reckoning on that? And I think my point against deconstruction is deconstruction is a secular progressive lens that people adopt language, they adopt concepts, and they read them back onto the Bible as if those concepts were needed to get rid of something like racism. My point is, the Bible has all the tools you need to stand up against something like racism or bigotry of some kind. The difference is the Bible is going to define things differently than the way that we use language today in kind of a progressive mindset. So, for example, we may adopt the terms of our culture and use words like affirming, non-affirming, patriarchy, um, you know, we have a million things sexually now that people use, but 
all of these terms smuggle in assumptions about what is considered bigotry or patriarchy or whatever else. And I would say the Bible actually has terms for these things under the category of sin. And those are the those are the words and those are the concepts that we should use to push back against things that really are sinful. What right. happens when you bring in these other terms is you get a misalignment on what is good and not good. So um, Josh Howerton, who's a pastor in Houston, had a great thread about this. He's saying the problem when you use a term like patriarchy, like uh, we need to tear down the patriarchy, is patriarchy as defined culturally contains both bad things and good things and some neutral things. Um, Whereas the Bible has terms for this, like domineering leadership, like uh, people who don't lead sacrificially, people who don't serve, people who are arrogant, people who are proud, people who are abusive. You'll find all these things all over Scripture. But what you have in the secular conception of patriarchy is an overlap. It's almost like a Venn diagram where you have some of the things that the Bible condemns, and you also have things that actually the Bible says are good. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you apply that back on Scripture, you shouldn't be surprised that now all of a sudden you have to jettison Scripture because you've used a foreign category to evaluate its truth claims. So th- this is where I would say it, if you're horrified by something, the more important question is what are you doing about it? What tools are you using to reevaluate it? What concepts and lenses and worldview commitments are you bringing in? And do they derive from Scripture? Do they derive from God? Or have you adopted the terms and the tools of the culture to then turn back around and deconstruct your faith? That, to me, makes all the difference. That's a really good point. because, And it gets back into this idea that I'd like to, to uh, get your thought on is when you're talking to someone or reading something about this topic, uh, about a lot of topics, one of the first things you should look for is what lens do they bring to the topic? Mm-hmm. If they bring a lens that says, I'm going to dive into the scripture as the authoritative word of God and try to hammer out what does God think about this? You may say, oh, that's awesome. We can have a dialogue. We may not agree about everything, but we, we, we share an authoritative structure. We share a lens, if you will. Let me just use that word temporarily. And so we can have a meaningful conversation. But a lot of times people are looking at this through a very different lens. And that's one of the reasons we have very heated, but not very productive conversations. What mm-hmm. are some of the lenses uh, that you would like to talk about and some of the, the ways you see this, the people, the lenses they bring, because I think that's one of the first questions to ask is to discern what lens are they looking through? The first way is to go back to something that you said earlier, and that is to reorient how we evaluate things from truth and the teller. I like the way you put that. You have truth and the teller. So deconstruction basically evaluates truth claims on the basis of the teller. So is this person of a certain kind? Is this person uh, of a certain history or do they have certain assumptions baked in? What we need to do is evaluate truth claims on their own merits. This is not to diminish the fact that uh, somebody who believes something who is a repulsive person, you might question uh, what they believe, what they if they truly believe what they say they believe. But it's different to say that that person is a hypocrite, which means they don't practice what they preach than it is to say, because that's a bad person, I cannot believe anything they believe without examining what they believe. So the first thing is we need to get back to evaluating truth on its own merits. Well, can I interject there and give a great example that you know, and our listeners do too, but in Philippians chapter one, as Paul is in jail, he's writing and he said, people are emboldened to preach the gospel. And he says, now to be fair, some of these people preach the gospel with very bad motives. They're trying to get me in more trouble. He said, but actually the gospel they're preaching is true. So regardless of their motives, they are preaching the truth. And I just think that's interesting that he Mm -hmm. looks at what are they saying uh, as of greater importance than the motives they bring to it. Right. I think a good example of this that's really current right now is the way that people are approaching the Supreme Court cases on abortion. So there are 
good and bad arguments for what the Supreme Court should do in terms of overturning Roe or Casey, uh, whether or not you agree that the Texas law is constitutional versus the Mississippi Dobbs case. But the argument that probably bears the marks of deconstruction or this lens the most is somebody who says a Supreme Court with majority men cannot rule on abortion. Okay, this is not an evaluation of a truth claim. This is an identity politics assessment or an ad hominem assessment, because what we believe is that abortion is wrong, no matter if 100 men say it or 100 women say it. And that doesn't take anything away from the fact that on certain policy questions, it's very helpful to make sure that you have women who are the ones who are framing and guiding the discussion. This doesn't take away from that at all. But on the morality of something or the constitutionality of something, it actually doesn't matter who's saying it until you establish whether or not what you're saying is true. So that would just be one example. We do this with scripture as well. We need to go back and reevaluate what it is that scripture actually says before we get into all the ways that it has been taken or who has advocated it and who hasn't and what it's been used to justify and what it hasn't. Let's just evaluate the truth claim on its own terms. And that applies to scripture, doctrine, history of the church, et cetera. So the first lens is we're going to look at truth before we look at the teller. And again, you'll go to the Bible and you'll realize that people's character really matters. Um, mm -hmm. And what you do really matters, but it doesn't take away from what God has said. The second thing I would say is where does the authority to speak truth lie? Nestled in the deconstruction lens is a kind of subtle commitment to my experience, my opinions, my view of the world is true, and no one can tell me otherwise. This is the live your truth kind of mindset. And actually, as Christians, we do not believe that that's true. We believe that what God says is true, and we conform our lives and our mindsets and our worldviews to what God has said. He's the one that has the authority. And in one sense, this is the antidote to the problem that many people that are deconstructing are trying to solve, which is, okay, you have these other people that I can't trust, either because of their commitments or because of their situation or their power. And so I have to discount what it is they're saying. Christianity can fully encompass the fact that people are untrustworthy because we don't believe that any person uh, on their own gets to decree what is true. We believe that God gets to decree what is true. And we acquiesce to that. So we actually are submitting our own experiences and our own beliefs to a different authority. And I think this is a better solution to the problem than the one that uh, a kind of a subjective deconstructionist lens can provide. I'll give one, one third one and, and kick it back to you. The third lens that we should use is what conforms to the image of Christ. So we know from Scripture that the goal of every Christian life is to look like Christ, to bear the fruits of the Spirit, to walk in a manner that's pleasing to God. And we should be evaluating whether or not our beliefs, our processes, our worldviews are honoring and glorifying and conforming us into the image of Christ. And uh, this is probably one where people think of things on you know, both sides of a topic where they say, well, there's people in the church that don't look very much like Christ. And there's people outside the church that don't look very much like Christ. And we would say that's 100% true. And our goal is right. to look more like Christ. So what worldview lens and what assumptions are going to conform us to Christ's image and which ones are actually going to make excuses for sin or which ones are going to keep us from knowing and loving God? So those three lenses are three that I'd suggest. What about you? No, I like those uh, a lot. I think it's important to discover the lens because nothing productive will be said unless you know where somebody's coming from. I do think authority is a big one. And I find that you, know, you see people shifting authority instead of what does the scripture say? And that will form my attitude. You see this subtle shift to what does the scripture say? And I will judge whether or not it is believable to me. And I'm talking about Christians now. Just listen and you'll hear that. You'll hear a difference between an earnest seeking of the truth and an earnest disagreement. We don't split over that, in my view. What we split over is a fundamental disagreement about who's going to be the authority. Is God judging me or am I judging God? And I know that sounds pretty stark, but you'll hear it. It's easy to, to spot in the, in the conversation. Uh, I do think 
you know, it's been said that man is the rationalizing animal. And I think you're right. We should not trust our own biases. And that's why we constantly bring everything against the unchanging measure of the word of God. I think we have to be people of the book. If you think about what Jesus talks about, he talks a great deal about love, talks a great deal about compassion, talks a great deal about grace. He talks a great deal about truth. And none of those things are inconsistent with one another. But it's going to be very hard to hold a deconstructionist point of view and still follow Jesus Christ when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I came to tell you the truth, and everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Uh, I came to tell you the truth, and the truth will actually set you free. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus talked a lot about truth, and we have to be people committed to truth. Yeah, I want to bring us to a, a close here on this first half by turning our attention to a passage that I think encompasses a lot of what we've tried to talk about today and certainly where we're going in the next episode, which if we've hit the ideological side today and we've kind of fleshed out what we mean by and what is the genealogy of deconstruction, we're moving towards the pastoral and experiential side of, but okay, this is, I, I'm not dealing with a person here who is um, trying to deconvert someone. I'm, I'm walking with somebody who's really having doubts, who's really been hurt, who's really trying to figure things out. And I want to admit that's a that's a big category of people as well. And so we turn our attention to that. But between now and then, I just want to read this passage from the end of Jude, because I think it encompasses almost all the dynamics that are going on in this conversation. In the end of Jude, uh, he turns his attention to the recipients of the letter, and this is in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So this is this this actually is the word for construction, which is kind of an interesting dynamic in Paul's letters. He loves the <laughs> right. word construction, wikodomeo. But you, beloved, uh, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, right? This is the goal of reconstruction. Keep yourselves in the love of God, the healthy kind, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. This is where we're going next time. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I think between now and then, if we spend a little time meditating on this, this really is the heart of the deconstruction uh, phenomenon. And so I'll leave it there until we come back in a couple of weeks and do the second part of our deconstruction episode. Until then, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.